Hey, it's Sarah. During this time of social isolation with no games to watch, ESPN Podcast is still churning out a ton of new content from all your favorite shows. Last week, there were new episodes of ESPN Daily, The Low Post, The Woj Pod, Sports with Katie Nolan, Ariel Helwani's MMA show, Stupidity Baseball Tonight, and more. You can listen to all of these and more podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. The perfect hire can have an impact on your business for years to come. So when you need to find that next person to help grow your business, LinkedIn Jobs will match the right talent with your open role fast. LinkedIn has over 675 million members worldwide. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills you're looking for so you can hire the right person fast. Things like collaboration, creativity, adaptability. LinkedIn looks beyond the work skills and puts your job post in front of qualified candidates who match your business requirements perfectly. That's how LinkedIn makes sure your job post is seen by the people you want to hire people with the skills, qualifications, and other interests that will help your business grow. It's no wonder a person is hired every eight seconds with LinkedIn and why companies rated LinkedIn jobs the number one hiring platform for delivering quality hires. Find the right person for your business today with LinkedIn jobs. You can pay what you want and get the first $50 off. Just visit linkedin.com slash Sarah. Again, that's linkedin.com slash Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. I'm Rhea Butcher, and my dilemma is I'm very bad at scheduling. Oh my God, scheduling. Uh, the weird thing is, is that I have a crazy schedule and it's like a Jenga puzzle. And if something gets moved, the whole thing falls down. But because of that, I've actually come to deeply respect scheduling. Um, I, I have a couple tips for you. One is that I have one calendar, my Google calendar, and then I use different colors for different things. So like, you know, work is green and purple is social and, and yellow is appointments. And I schedule things well in advance. If I have a general idea, always knowing that I can move them, which is a lot easier on a computer than say when you used to write everything down in a book. So let's say I want to make sure I go to some hot Pilates class every Thursday. I'll put it in there for three weeks ahead of time and schedule around it in the hopes that I can make it work. And then if it turns out there's no chance I can make it, I've absolutely got to do work at that time. I could take it out and fill it in. But I think getting ahead of your schedule and not behind is the biggest part. Another trick that I always use that my husband hates, but I find incredibly useful is I put appointments that are going to be like a phone call or a meeting or something I need to be at at a specific time in the alarms portion of my phone. It means I have, I don't know, 50 alarms right now because some of them are things that are not on. They're just, okay, what do I need to do? Let me check my alarms. Oh yeah, I was going to watch that TV show at some point. Oh, I got to send those letters, got to pay that bill. Or they're turned on and the alarm goes off and says, you have a call in two minutes just in case my brain doesn't remember or I'm running around or I got in the midst of doing something and forgot. So using those alarms instead of using the calendar for that has really helped me to keep on track of things. I would also say you have to care about scheduling and some people are sort of rebellious in that way. They don't want to feel scheduled. And if that's your problem, that's a whole different ballgame. As a total type A control freak, I need the schedule to keep me doing the things I need to do and being able to slot in all my different jobs. If you are someone who pushes back on that uh you may need to consult another expert on that the commission has spoken my guest this week is Rhea butcher an american stand-up comedian actor writer producer and podcast host you can usually find Rhea on stage in all sorts of different cities doing stand-up but you know not now 
because quarantine, uh, global pandemic, that kind of slows you down. But you could still find uh, Rhea on the show Good Trouble on Freeform or Old Stand Up Online. Recent appearance on Ellen is up. Uh, we talked about a whole bunch of things. We first met at Gina Davis's film festival and we both got to meet Gina before a League of Their Own reunion game. And we just talked about baseball and comedy and everything else. And so we got into that again, a little deep dive because Rhea wrote for the new television ser- series that's coming out soon about a league of their own. Uh, we also talk about how Rhea goes by non-binary um, pronouns, they, them, there, and what it was like to sort of introduce that to people in their life. Um, baseball, why, why they're such a big baseball fan, going to an all-girls school and how that actually helped Rhea feel like they weren't different or less than being uh, at an all-girls school and how that changed getting to a co-ed high school. Uh, a mind-blowing fact about the Akron Zips that I had never thought about, the mascot there, uh, Rhea's brief foray into pro skateboarding, and how Rhea has approached what comes at them in life because of being non-binary and presenting non-binary, um, going from looking for a fight or expecting a fight to trying to approach things with compassion and kindness. Uh, I thought this conversation was so fascinating. I've always been a big fan of Rhea. I think you guys are going to be too after you listen to it. That's what she said. My guest today is Rhea Butcher, a stand-up comedian, actor, writer, producer, podcast host. We originally met, I believe, for the first time, and maybe the only time, at Gina Davis's film festival. Uh, oh, we dang. both got to meet Gina before a League of Their Own reunion game. And I remember hitting it off, talking baseball and comedy. And I think that's the only time we've ever met in person. I I think you're right. And I'm so, first of all, thanks for having me on, Sarah. So happy sure. to be here. And, uh, wow, what a throwback memory. <laughs> I, I like, yeah, what a day that was. What it was an pretty experience awesome. That was, it was, uh, whew, that was a whole thing. That was a whole amazing layered thing of like getting to meet Gina Davis, then also meeting other people from the movie. Yeah. Marla, then Moot, also, yes. Yes. Marla, uh, Megan, Ca- uh, Callahan, right? That's yeah. Her name. I think yep. so. Um, and, uh, also, uh, Robin from the L word, uh, her name is mm-hmm. escaping her. She played first. Yeah. Her- yeah. 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 Uh, uh-huh. And also Penny Marshall's daughter who played Betty Spaghetti. Anyway. Yes. Uh, so many, so many people there. And then also there were all American girls, professional baseball league players there. Mm-hmm. And, um, I don't know if you met Jeannie Casey. Did you get a chance to meet her? When you I were don't there? think I met, I've met a couple of them, but I don't think I met Jeannie Casey. She was there. Her nickname was Chirpy and she was like friends with all of that, like friends with Pepper. She had all the like pins of like Pepper Pear, like all the, the top line professional baseball league women. And I got to watch her. There was this moment. I don't know if you remember this, but like Gina got everybody to like gather around the mound and they started singing the song from the movie, which was a real song that was Mm -hmm. a real thing that Pepper Pear wrote. And I was watching them just having this like full body experience as a person who went to see that movie in the theater. Yeah. And then I happened to look over at the on deck circle because Jeannie Casey had asked to get an at bat. And I happened to like look over and turn my phone towards her and she was singing along to it Uh as though she was back there. And it was such a powerful thing to get to witness. I saw that video somewhere on my phone and on my I have like chills just you recounting that because <laughs> it is interesting to have seen the movie growing up and then I watched it again just a couple of years ago. I was a couple mm-hmm. wine glasses deep to be fair, sure. but I watched it again with a renewed interest in 
all of the storylines around it and now being someone who works in trying to advocate for women in sports and female athletes. And when I was younger, like I just didn't even occur to me. I was like, well, things are fixed now. We have title nine and I play every sport. Right. <laughs> yep. And so, yeah. but I also wasn't like feminist enough to be like, but wait, I can't play this professionally. That oh, thing. What the f-? mm-hmm. Right. And so I, I was like in an in-between phase. And now that I'm older, there was like a, there was like a painful stabbing of like, oh, this still isn't fixed, but also just a, so much of an appreciation for those women that just bawling when I watch the movie now. And like, oh, that, yeah, yeah, that whole I've, I've met a couple of those women a couple of times. I got to actually be in an extremely hot, unair conditioned booth with Penny Marshall for a different reunion game out in Southern California around our ESPNW summit and just got to for the entirety of the game, pick Penny's brain about like, what was it like? How did you know that Madonna was going to be able to figure out how to look like a baby? baseball player and what was it like working with Rosie and yada yada um and, and it was pretty incredible and so um I've had a number of kind of interactions with that mm-hmm. movie in the last couple of years through mm-hmm. work um and it just gets more and more cool um yeah the dive amazing the deeper you dive into it um I I also have had a lot of interactions with the movie the franchise the the, the league because I um wrote on the tv series oh no way years ago I was in the the writer's room and uh so I've done so much research on all that stuff and do you know what's what's really amazing to me is that and this is just in talking to Megan um that the the filming the the experience of making the movie mirrors the experience of the women in the league of like they didn't get paid a lot but they had a uh, this per diem that was like the most that any of these actors had ever been paid and like the the way they had to shoot it was like go 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 you know like because it was this huge ensemble in mm-hmm. outside and period like all this stuff and yep. it, it's it's so amazing to me that like the 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 behind the scenes of the movie actually mirrors the day to day experience of yeah. the league and learning baseball really- and. And getting yeah. better and then like some of them not being like, you know, real athletes or identifying themselves as athletes before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Penny talked about that too. A lot of the logistics of, of trying to fit it in in stadiums and spaces and all that stuff. I can't even imagine the logistics yeah. of, of that I, and like so, the budget that they worked on. <laughs> it's crazy. We're doing a deep dive in a league of their own before we even get yeah. to anything about you, but I'm really enjoying this. Are you involved in the new Amazon series that's got a that's, Darcy Carden from the, the Good Place and Abby Jacobson? That's the series that I wrote on. Yeah. Oh, no. Hey, so give us the scoop. When is it coming I, out? That's, I don't have any more scoop than what? That's what it. I'm sorry. I wish I did, but I don't have any other scoop than that, than that I wrote on it two years ago. How was <laughs> that it. part of it? Was that good? Uh, it, I mean, no, it was great. I just mean, I'm not like, that's just how like Hollywood stuff goes that you like, you do the thing and then it, it goes through the process and then you're like, cool, here it is. Right, right. Um, um, it was really, you, guys, it was, you, you weren't on set as you, as you continued no, to shoot. It, they weren't making changes during filming. No, it's not. It's, uh, we like development these days works a lot differently where we were writing it before it was even going to that. It's, we wrote it two years ago and now it's gone to pilot. Got it. Okay, cool. In, in 2020. So that's why I'm like, I don't, I literally don't know. Because I'm just not, it, it was written and now it's like in a different place. What a I'm cool project for you though. That is such a great, like just all the things. And let's get, let's get to why, uh, that's a cool project. For me. <laughs> yeah. Let's absolutely. like tell people more about you. Um, so let's talk about your childhood. You were, you grew up in Ohio. Um, yep, I read that you're, Ohio. yeah, I read you're an only child whose parents divorced when you were a month old. So <laughs> that's why you're a comedian, I assume. Yep. 
Yep. Okay. Yeah. That checks out. Um, what was your childhood like? What were you into? Um, well, I mean, to get to it, I was, I, I, people ask me when I started being a baseball fan and like, I've been a baseball fan just like the whole time. I can't, there, (laughs) there isn't really a time that I remember baseball not being a part of my life. Um, it just, I, like, I grew up in, uh, my, with my mom and her parents in one household. So I was living with, you know, two generations and they were from, you know, the great depression era and, uh, they were like essentially retired and, um, they watched a lot of baseball. Like it was just on and they weren't Any like particular they, team. Well, we watched a lot of Atlanta because yeah. of, uh, cable. Yeah, Superstation. Um, and my grandfather, I guess, yeah, exactly, the, the WTBS Superstation. Um, my grandfather didn't like to watch Cleveland because he was like, oh, they ju- that's the team you beat or whatever, which is a pretty accurate description of most Cleveland teams. Um, <laughs> and so uh, we just enjoyed watching a team win every now and then. So he would watch Atlanta. But, I mean, I was like a big Sid Bream fan. You know, like these are the days that I – like the 87 Braves – um, but I, like, I love the bets when I was a kid, you know, cause like Daryl Strawberry is like a great last name for children. Um, but like, I just remember it related to being, strawberry shortcake, I think was, uh, her brother, her brother, her brother cousin, yeah. maybe, yeah. Mm-hmm. cousin twice removed. Yeah. Um, but I also, I think part of what drew me into baseball is, uh, and it used to be like this, that it's not really when you watch a game like this anymore, but like the box score coming up, um, used to always have runs, hits, errors, and that's almost all of my name. So, like, I'm pretty sure narcissistically I would be right. looking at the TV and see my own name on television and be like, well. Gosh, if only there I were assists in baseball. There should have been assists, and then you would have been. Would now have been. we have them. Now we have yeah. outfield assists. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I did just truly love it. Like, I remember being, like, four and putting pillows in the living room and just, like, running the bases, you know? Oh, it nice. just, I just loved it. I love the sound of it. I love the feeling of it. Um, and you know, my, my family was not like, we didn't have like pennants all over the place. But, like, I don't know if they ever even physically went to a game, but it was just something they loved to watch. Yeah. Well, the good news is you could set up pillows around your house right now and run the base. Yeah. If you're into I could it. absolutely do that. Perfect quarantine activity. So it's good. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, so you went to Our Lady of the Elms High School. <laughs> that sounds religious. Yeah, I mean, I'll take. I'll. I do have to correct you. I only went to the elementary school. Okay, I did not was, go to the high school, unfortunately. Okay. And then you went it to was, Archbishop Archbishop Hoban High School. That also sounds yeah. religious. They're both religious. Yes. <laughs> okay. How so was that? My, uh, I mean, the first one was all girls. Like I went oh. to an all girls Catholic school. And like, I'm very grateful that I went to that school because I'll tell you, I went to school and I didn't think that I was like different because I was a girl for most of my childhood. Right. Which I think is incredibly important, even though I came home and experienced those things, watch TV, experienced those things. But when I was learning, learning things, when I was um understanding things, I didn't think there was something wrong with me because I was a girl. And I'll tell you that when I started going to co-ed school, I remember being in like eighth grade and raising my hand. And I was the first person to raise my hand. And my teacher looked at me and then kept looking around. And she literally waited for a boy to raise his hand and called on him. And I was like, Oh my God, it's true. I remember having that thought. 
the rumors like, so, the rumors yeah, are true. Thing that like well i kind of see it on television and i kind of because i had a, like boyfriends in my neighborhood and i didn't really perceive them as treating me any differently like we were just friends and we played sports together and like that just was what it was and i did you know there was like outside influences where i was like well these people are treating me badly because of that and um i always like i think people always sort of read me as different as in gay or potentially gay, you know? So that was always kind of around, but I never felt like because I was a girl, I couldn't. Right. I didn't feel that way in school or with my friends. And then when I started to go into like the bigger world into like high school and stuff, I was like, Oh, this is like, this is like for serious. You know, <laughs> It was like a real serious thing. Was your family religious? No, no, just that no. just worked out. Those were the schools that well, made sense. Yeah, my mom really, like, she grew up in the neighborhood that I grew up in, and I think she really wanted to, she didn't have a great time there necessarily, so she was, like, trying to put me in a better scenario, and um that school was, like, one of the better schools for, specifically for girls at the time, right. and um so it just happened that that lined up with being a religious school, Um and, you know, that school specifically, I'm grateful for because uh, the, I do, I like learned about n- other religions in that school. Like it was Catholic, um, but it didn't have a church associated with it, you know? So like it was run by nuns. And so, yes, it was Catholic for sure. That was like the first thing that you learned about. You learned about Christianity, but I also learned a lot about other religions, which is, I think, atypical of a lot of like Catholic private schools. So yeah. grateful for that. Like, tiny amount of diversity. And I would say while the numbers were very small, so I'm not trying to say like the school was hyper diverse, it was probably more diverse than the public school that I would have gone to in my neighborhood. Yeah. So you said that people were sort of maybe catching on or thinking, oh, there's a chance that Rhea's gay. Mm -hmm. Um, When you were growing up first in the all girls school and and then in the high school, was it clear to you early on or did it come to you later? Well, I think that I knew... I knew right away that something was like, I'm going to say, this is going to sound negative, but I I don't mean it that way. Something was off. <laughs> like right. it didn't, right. it, not everything lined up, you know, like I liked pink when I was a kid. I, I liked uh Barbies, like all these things that you could point to and be like, well, girls do that stuff. Like you could point to that and be like, yes, uh, I did that. Um, but I also, you know, really liked sports and like girls like that stuff too. So it's not like there's anything necessarily that you can say like, well, it's all these things. So obviously, um, it's just a feeling on the inside where I was like, yeah, but I don't feel like these things you're telling me are who I am, you know? Um, and I think a lot of people, many people saw that and they wanted, they wanted to turn it off. You know, many people saw that. And I think adults were maybe concerned for my future in a way, or, you know, like it just was, I would say for the most part, the reactions that I got, it was almost like it was a joke. Like it was this joke that all the adults were in on. And I wasn't yet, you know, that like it's, it was so, um, obvious that I was gay. You know, people called me a tomboy and then yeah. they would like look at each other sideways and I'd be like, what's that? <laughs> so then I will say that that because of the time that I was growing up in, 
like the the late 80s and then the 90s like it was not like it is now it just wasn't you know and and that got in there and then it became you know the having this catholic education or whatever um i was like well i don't want to be that thing that everybody tells me that i am right you know and some of that is just my nature of like and i use that to my advantage when i played sports because i played basketball and the um or any sport that I picked up because I've just always been an athletic person and I could feel that sort of like, well, you're not, you know, the older I got, the more the, well, girls can't really play. Girls aren't that good. It's never going to go anywhere. Who cares? You know, like I could feel that coming in, which is sort of the same attitude. And I used that and I'm grateful for it because I used it as like, I'll show you, I'll show you that I'm, as good or better than you think I'm going to be. And I was very good. <laughs> I yeah. was very good at basketball. Um, but, but it starts to become a constant and I just couldn't keep up. I didn't have the tools to keep up with it. And I didn't have the sort of, um, I just didn't have the, like the network of people keeping me in it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I couldn't to, do it. To play I just at the next level. Right. Yeah. To play at the next level. I just, I was too angry. I had to, the chip on the shoulder got too big and I didn't, I just didn't have, but I mean, I'm grateful for it. Cause I, you know, we're talking to each other right now. So right, like right. everything happened the way it was supposed to happen. And like, I get to play baseball now as an adult with men and women and other non-binary people. And like, that is a dream. That is an absolute dream, <laughs> you know? So everything kind of worked out, you know? So you obviously were super into sports and you played sports. Were you also into comedy at that time? Were you the kind of person that was watching, you know, Eddie Murphy stand up or anything like that? <laughs> you know, it's also something that I remember from an early, early age because um we had cable because my that that was essentially my grandparents' retirement was having cable. Like they didn't travel, they didn't have like hobbies. They just were like, we're paying for cable and that's our retirement. <laughs> so <laughs> I remember watching, there was a lot of stand up on at the time, specifically on VH1. And, uh, we were talking about Rosie O'Donnell. She hosted a show called Stand Up Spotlight, VH1 Stand Up Spotlight. Yeah. And my mom and I used to watch that. I think it was on on Friday nights. And, uh, being an only child with divorce, you know, I, I spent a lot of one on one time with, each of my parents. And, um, that was like something that we did was we watched that stand up. And I'll say that that particular show, I don't know if it was Rosie's influence or what, but there were a lot of women on that show. Mm. There were a lot of women stand ups. So to me, stand up was always something that women did, which is funny, you know, because like for the past however many years, that was a major conversation that like, Oh, stand up is only these like straight white guys in hoodies or whatever. Um, but to me, I was always, you know, there were so many women stand like Judy Tenuta and, um, you know, Ellen yeah. was on that thing. And like, um, Bre- uh, oh God, now I'm like blanking on her name, Brett. Uh, anyway, mm. she, she had a show called, uh, Grace Under Fire for a while. Oh yeah. Yeah. Will, um, William Fickner was on. And uh, I remember that. I remember that, but her I forget. Name was Brett, uh, Brett, like, Butler? Her, Brett Butler. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she had a great silly, sad, dark joke about Patsy Cline, like getting a piece of the plane that said, I fall to pieces anyway. Um, <laughs> but like I watched it and I like loved it, but I just didn't know it was a thing you could do. Like I, I had no idea how any of those people got started. It was like, Oh, they just magically were standups and cool. That's a thing. I feel like that's creativity in a nutshell. Like I remember <laughs> yeah. when I moved to LA and I just bought a paperback book that was like, 
how to become an actress. I was like, page mm-hmm. one, mm-hmm. go to, go to the, you know, buy this book, buy the book, <laughs> yeah. go to the store and buy your sides for auditions and then call this yeah. agency. I'm sure they'll be interested, even though you have zero experience with anything. Sure. Um, so you were into it, but it wasn't like, I'm going to do that later. It was just something you enjoyed. Uh, so yeah, you I mean, be- I think I, I think I had a tiny seed of like, I think the seed was planted. I just wasn't really aware of it. Were you a class clown type or were you oh, yeah. cast? So yeah, you 100%. were like, you were working that muscle, even if it wasn't, you know, in a professional capacity. Oh, yeah. I would, I would take jokes from the stand-up that I saw and then I would go into school and at that all girl school and like tell them to the teachers. Yeah. Not the class, the teachers. Cause I've I was gotten like, a lot of trouble the for teachers that as well. would get it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I only told the clean material. Oh, I did not. Yeah. I told a lot of jokes that came around my household that my parents knew that I didn't understand, but didn't think I would repeat ones that end in mm. stuff like, you know, the woodpecker pecks the tree and says, this is the best piece of ash I've had my pecker in in a long time. Um, which wow. is technically clean, but that was not what the joke was getting after. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Got, got sent to the principal's office quite a bit in my early days. And you're days. like, it's just about ornithology. Like it's yeah. It's about like a bird and some trees. I don't get it. <laughs> um, so you go to the Uni- university of Akron, uh, and and you graduate in printmaking. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I don't that mean to laugh. laugh. I don't. I don't know what that you means. Should. I'm glad. Um, well, I can't believe you're not aware of the highly lucrative field of printmaking. You can literally print money. Um, it is. Uh, so it's a Bachelor of Fine Arts. I went to art school. Uh, shout out to the Myers School of Fine Arts uh, at the University of Akron. Um, better known as Akron U to those of us uh, in Northeastern Ohio. It is the University of Akron, but everyone like is that uh, colloquially refers to it as Akron U, which okay. is just funny and weird to me because it's yeah, not sure. Akron University. You're right. Whatever. That doesn't make any sense. Just throwing it out there. Also, well, you're all I- artists, so potentially dyslexia was at play. <laughs> potentially. <laughs> Can I also just throw out there to tie the University of Akron sports into this um, the mascot of the University of Akron, part of the MAC conference, um, is the Zip, which is yeah. also a kangaroo, Zippy the kangaroo. Yeah. Uh, named for the zippers on the shoes, which I believe were manufactured in Akron around the 40s. Now, this mascot has a pouch, which means that mascot is the only female mascot in all of NCAA. Oh, as far as we know, right? As far as we know. I think there's some definitely However, some non-binary mascots. There's some non-binary mascots, but this one, most I don't know definitely how a woman necessarily identifies, but we right. will say from the externals, this is a, a female mascot. Love that. I've never and thought I, about that. I feel like the University of Akron is just like, <laughs> like they, yeah, like they, they probably, they probably they downplayed it. I don't know that they've really, they, they could absolutely be monetizing that. And instead they're just like, ah, eh, we'll see if anyone notices. No, we wouldn't want to make the boys feel uncomfortable. Right. Exactly. Just, just <laughs> all of the women. Um, Let's go with fear the Rue. That's actually their most recent thing is fear oh, the Rue, which is very bad. Funny. That's unfortunate. Um, but yes, I, I, I went to school for printmaking and, uh, that's things like lithography and, uh, like relief woodcuts and, uh, screen printing. Cool. Stuff like that. Um, but I, I, I actually feel like going to school for printmaking helped me in comedy because printmaking is, uh, you work in editions, right? So you come up with this, this image, uh, to put it simply, and then you reproduce it a bunch of times and you like give those editions out to people. And to me, that's a joke. 
you yeah, come up with this idea so and you sort of get it to where you want it to be. And then you reproduce it a bunch of times to a bunch of different people. And each one is slightly different, just yeah. barely imperceivably different. But um, each person gets their own uh, specific addition to them. So every time you like tell that. a joke in a show, it's each person, each person in that audience perceives the joke slightly differently than the other people. Yeah. So when you went to grad school at Notre Dame, was that a continuation mm -hmm. of the fine arts? It was, it was, so it was for a master's of fine arts, which is like the terminal degree for an, for a BFA. Um, and if you essentially the master's of fine arts is the key to uh, teaching at the collegiate level and being able to get like tenure to be on is a that tenure the goal? track. It, it was in theory, like I didn't really know what I wanted to do because when I was in Akron at that time, which was like the early two thousands, like I believe nine 11 happened on like my fourth day of class in oh, wow. college, I think. Um, <clears throat> I just really didn't know what to do. There weren't, at that time, many opportunities in Akron outside of service industry and retail, uh, for me, at least. I, I couldn't really see where to go and, and how to be the, and I just didn't know. I, I really didn't know. It kind of relates back to when we were talking about like sports, like the chip on the shoulder got bigger and bigger and I didn't, I didn't know how to, I didn't know what to do. I literally, just thought, well, if I go to college, then I'll be able to make enough money. Like, I just didn't know, you know, I didn't have the um, resources to understand like, oh, you try things and you, you know, whatever. Um, so I really was like, I guess this is the only option for me to do something other than probably work retail. Because when I graduated college, the only job I could get was I was helping stuff envelopes at a friend's uh, where a friend worked. And then I worked as a barista at Seattle's Best inside of a Borders Books and Music. You didn't have the urge to make art. You you liked it. Well, it I, was I I wanted to make art, but I was like like many people, this doesn't make money. So I have to I have to make money first, you know, which I'm actually currently doing the artist's way and we're on the week about oh, that. Nice. Yeah. Which is like Oh yeah, this was such a, it was such a strong idea. Like I didn't have, like I was not necessarily on my own, but financially, like the, I took out loans to go to school. Like I did, you know, I just was like, I don't know how this is going to work. And just making art felt, uh, it felt luxurious, you know, it yeah, felt like, sure. well, I don't deserve to try to only do this. And realistically, I couldn't see that going for the masters was time to do that. You know, I was like, I have to make money now, you know, um, because I just felt like if I didn't, I would, you know, be out on the street or something. Right. Um, and so it, it was a, it was not necessarily true that that was the case, but that was what was going on for me at the time. Well, and that's so very I common I think, right out of college, oh, yeah. either to say, okay, I want more college because then I don't have to make up my mind or to say, uh -huh. I need to do literally anything to be great right away or to make money right away. There's no, you know, that's the most like emo time in terms of like, what am I making sure. of myself kind of, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, You worked at a skate shop when you were in college, right? Uh, Yeah, I actually worked at a skate shop. That was my first job in Akron was uh, at a skate shop when I was like 16. And then I worked at a, when I was in college, I worked at a skate shop that was inside of a 
indoor skate park, like privately owned indoor. I saw a lot of gnarly injuries. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was pretty, pretty wild. But yeah, I, I was just, when I sort of drifted from organized sports, uh, I, I, I fell into the loving arms of, uh, skateboarding for yeah. mm, about 10 years. I, I was a pretty hardcore, like consistent. It was part of my everyday life. Like I set my college schedule so that I would have days that I could go skate. I can't even go like a foot on a skateboard. And I mm. think I need to officially decide that like, I'm not too old to at least be able to make it one street length without falling. I'm going to, oh, I'm yeah. going to. When, when all this blows over, when all, I'm hitting a skate park. There's, there's no time like now. I mean, yeah, I mean, now would be a good time. The streets are empty. So really, yeah, if I had a skateboard, empty. I could really do it now, but I, I might need lessons and knee pads and elbow yeah. pads. And elbow I mean, pads. The, the trick is that, that you probably need to be leaning more forward <laughs> than you think. That's actually okay. the trick. Because, okay. Like, that's my problem. I think I just stand straight up and then I'm like, why didn't it work? Yeah. Your weight actually needs to be like over your front foot, which needs to be on top of the front mounting hardware, which is how the trucks, the four little screws in the front. That's actually like your weight needs to be more over that kind of like you need to look like a speed skater on the board, but you're not switching feet, right? You're only using the, the one leg. I have snowboarded, so I think I should try to apply those principles. And, yeah, uh, you know. I think snowboarding is slightly different because you're kind, you're 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 riding it, you're like sitting into like, it instead. You're of, yeah, sitting yeah. into it, whereas yeah. which you do in skateboarding, but I think people try to do that first. Way too and early. What you actually need to do <laughs> yeah. out in front of it. Oh, uh, all right. Maybe it, maybe it won't. I don't, you know what? I'll think about it. I'm, I've got plenty of time to think about whether I'm yeah, going to take up so skateboarding. Um, okay. So how do you get into comedy then? You're, you're trying to figure out, you're working in a coffee shop, you're, you're doing mm-hmm. retail and what inspires you to say, okay, never mind. I don't have to do the thing that immediately makes money. I'm going to do the thing sure. that takes forever to make money. So I, well, I actually, and I just one more thing about skateboarding. I just want to throw out that I did skate professionally briefly. Whoa. Because I was in a Vans Triple Crown contest in 2003 in Cleveland. That's amazing. I just, I just want to throw that stat yeah. out there. Cause I mean, you it can is put it on your resume. Yeah. I absolutely can. There's a tiny animated GIF of me doing a kickflip to fakie up like a very tall bank. Um, nice. and I skated with like Amy Karen and Vanessa Torres, two people who were very successful and like led the way in like women's and queer and non-binary skateboarding. Um, and it was, they were like 15 at the time and they were just like ripping. It was so crazy and cool. Anyway. Um, so I actually like, I drop out of grad school at Notre Dame, which is in South Bend. And I moved to Chicago and I like over the course of a couple years, figure out how to get a job and healthcare and like get some financial stability and like understand what it's like to work a job and pay my bills on time. Like I get. I actually get a, a minimal financial foundation, which allows me the time to uh, realize that I do want to pursue comedy because I'm in Chicago and Second City and all this improv and all this stand up is going on. And I, I started listening to podcasts in like 09 at this job. Like I got an office job in the Sears Tower and I rode my bike every day to that job and I just got like. I got some footing that I just didn't have before that mentally, emotionally, all of that. 
Um, and I started listening to these podcasts and listening specifically to Paul F. Tompkins on, you know, every podcast, basically talk about how he got into stand up and comedy. And I was like, this is, I like this guy and I feel like I have some sort of like we're kindred spirits in a way in this comedy thing. I want to do this thing. And at the same time, some of my friends, they started doing like the second city writing and also the second city improv. And I was like, I am funnier than them. (laughs) (laughs) And so in a little way, spite helped me get into comedy. Yeah. (laughs) And I started taking, luckily I didn't take, the same classes with them. Like they started doing it and I felt like left behind and everything, but I'm really grateful that I was because I had to go do it by myself. I didn't have some buddy. I didn't have like, I didn't have a partner doing it with me. Like I had to go show up to class and I had to like talk to people. I had to like do it. I was paying for it. I had to show up and I did. And like, I went to these improv classes at second city and I lucked out and had a class with, People who, whether they wanted to do it as careers or not, they were really committed in the the hour that we were there. And they really tried. And I, I still talk to some of those folks. Um, like when I was on Ellen in December, I posted about it on Facebook, which I almost never use that thing anymore. But so many of the people from my improv classes reached yeah. out and like texted me and stuff. And it was really cool. It was really amazing. So I started doing those classes and in Chicago, Stand up and improv are so separated. Like in stand up, if you do improv too, the stand ups don't consider you to be a stand up. It's really wild. Um, but I was doing improv and really, really loving it. And then I went to another improv school. Uh, I went to IO and I met some new people and it just, I just didn't gel with the process there or like with the format. I just didn't, it just wasn't, it just wasn't the right spot. And I met another friend. And we sort of became friends over podcasts and stand up and like sketch a little bit more. And we convinced each other to go do this uh, open mic that was in my neighborhood. And we did this open mic together on the same night, like basically spent the whole night keeping each other from leaving (laughs) and backing out. Um, And we both did it, you know, three minute sets or whatever. And and I remember going up at like one in the morning, one thirty in the morning or something like that. And uh, there was people in the audience and people laughed. I mean, I don't think I crushed, but I also remember feeling like absolutely at home yeah. doing that, you know, and, and I was like, oh, this is it. This is the thing that I want to do because I, I loved being in those improv classes and I loved the game of it, of like trying to find the funny thing. And I loved making my cohort laugh um, and taking those classes really helped me feel comfortable on that stage in that moment because I, had to had to feel comfortable failing in front of other people. Yeah. Even though it was like a small. So if we ever go back to having, you know, gatherings again, um, <laughs> I highly recommend taking an improv class or two. Um, you don't have to do the whole thing, but like if it's something you want to do, like it really helps you get comfortable trying in front of like, you know, people that you don't really know, but you will get to know, you know? Yeah. Well, and what's interesting too, is so many people in comedy, and not everyone, absolutely, but a lot of people um, at times in their life felt like outsiders or misunderstood mm-hmm. or struggled with who they were and, and what they wanted and, and who they wanted to be. And it's fascinating that for some people, the most terrifying place on earth would be a stage if you felt that way. <laughs> sure. But for comedians, it's like, oh, no, here, this is where I belong with like a whole bunch of other people that don't really know 
where they belong and who they are and, and everything else. Like, um, it's interesting, but it sounds to me that you were not ever really struggling with who you were. It was always a defiance of this is, this is who I am. So like, I don't really care if you're worried about what it might mean for me to be gay or for me to be a quote unquote tomboy presenting. Um, is that true? It does, it, it doesn't feel like it was fraught for you with emotion and, and struggle. I mean, I appreciate that. And I think that you're, you're right. But I do, th- I think that it was both. I think that both things were happening, which is interesting. You know, I wasn't, um, cause like I, I was very for like high school, very much like I'm not, I'm not gay. Like I'm not. And, um, also, uh, unable to present that information to people in a, like, I just always thought people were going to be sad or disappointed or like just because of the time that I grew up, you know, like it really wasn't, I just didn't even know what it meant. You know, like it, it, it was always external forces that made me feel bad about it. It wasn't internal. Like when I really thought it's, it's like when you, when I was really in just in myself, I didn't really have a problem with myself. But once I started seeing myself in the world, it was like so, something is wrong with it. Cause like I would go just out in the world and people would yell things at me across the street. Like, what is that? what are you like stuff like mm-hmm. that? And this was yeah. my whole, my whole life. And I will say that when I was like six, I went into a a public restroom at a campsite. So I was like the only person in there and there was this janitor in there. And he was like, what are you doing in here? And like, just yelled at me like, like, and also like, he's a man in a women's restroom yelling at a child right. that they're in the wrong restroom. And that really affected me for like a very long time. And so I I just, I did, I will say that like, I did hide a lot of myself. Like it did take a toll and a lot of it was like physically, like I've recently started to like rehab my shoulder and stuff. And I realized how much I like hold my body to like protect myself mm-hmm. when I feel like that sort of emotional feeling going on. Um, But yeah, but like public restrooms for me have been difficult my entire life. And I feel like a lot of people, can relate to that. It's been a recent, you know, uh, conversation struggle and it's been like, you know, in the lawmaking circles for, uh, very recently. Um, but yeah, it's something, it's still, it's still a thing that I have to like sort of prepare to go in there that like I, what I've done recently in, in my life and in my sort of journey is that I prepare to go in there with kindness, compassion, and understanding. I used to go in ready for a fight. But now I go in not not looking for a fight. And so it doesn't mean people um, don't bring a fight to me. It just means I don't meet a fight with another fight. Yeah. You know, it doesn't mean I'm always like so kind and nice and loving to somebody. Like I will protect myself. But I just mean like, you know, uh, people will say things and I'm like, I usually just look at them until they realize like, oh, this isn't a thing that I need to be doing, you know, right. cause like just I'm literally not doing anything to you. You know what I mean? Right. Um, but I, I, those things did, you know, take a toll and it did it, it, the confidence or understanding that I had of myself as a four year old child started to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And recently in the past couple of years, I've been able to reconnect with that, you know, and realize like, Oh, I was, I was doing some like self-protection and like some defenses that are maybe not healthy for me or my relationships or, you know, uh, just my life. 
um, to get me through those times. And so like, it's just, it's just a little different now, but I've had to like rework the relationship to myself first to then, um, be able to experience these things with like kindness and understanding as opposed to like anger and sadness. Well, I feel like it's different for people across so many things, whatever it is that they want to reconcile within themselves or with others. But for whatever reason, the like thirties are that time. Like the thirties are the time when you're like, I'm going to lead with compassion and generosity. I'm going to be more thoughtful about myself and others. I'm going to be much less judgmental and more, you know, offering up grace to people for their flaws and whatever else they're working through and myself as well. And then it just like opens you up to so many different things. I just have found that across the board with mm. so many people I know at, at, at this age. Um, so I want to get back to the comedy stuff, but while we're on, yeah, there, let's do it. Um, like two years ago, about two years ago, almost exactly, you went on Twitter and wrote, FYI, I use they, them, their pronouns now. And I just went back to find it. And my favorite response was someone who wrote, will you also accept them? Which just made me laugh so hard. <laughs> um, but I'm, um, what was the decision process before announcing? Who did you talk to before you tweeted it? Uh, presumably someone, maybe not. Maybe you just went tweet first. Um, uh, yeah. What, I what was that I like? Tweet first. I was very, I was very tweet first back then, two years ago. It's wild that, uh, it's wild that that was two years ago. Um, cause it feels like yesterday and also 20 years ago at the same time. Um, I think for me, I, the, the gender part and the sexuality part have always been kind of intertwined. And then also they're very different, you know? So like, talking about being four or being a child and being called a tomboy is a little bit more the gender part than it is the sexuality part. Because um, while I knew that I wasn't necessarily like, yeah, I'm going to get married to him. Cause like we're inundated with sexuality as children. People just don't see it that way. <laughs> like giving a little girl a baby to carry around is sexuality. Like, but we just don't connect those two dots necessarily. Um, and so I always sort of like, was confused by that. So anyway, I say all that to say, like, I always felt a little, I sort of reclaimed this title of like lesbian in my late twenties because I had ruffled at that term because it's sort of been made to feel like a weird word or like a gross word, you know, like I know a lot of lesbians who don't identify as lesbian for that exact reason. So I was like, again, chip on my shoulder. I'm going to take it back even harder. And then eventually like, it just, I used to be so upset and hurt when people called me sir. I had a lot of material about it. And then I learned to accept that. And then in accepting that, that people, many of the people that called me sir or he or whatever, were doing it out of an attempt at respect and kindness. And if they could confuse what my gender was, those people, if they could get the quote answer wrong to it, then maybe the question was never anything to begin with. And maybe if I could just accept and be open to the fact that like, oh, if that person doesn't know, I don't know either. And also my not knowing is so free, you know? Um, and then I started to feel like, oh, she actually doesn't feel very accurate. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't feel when people were calling me she and I was like, this just doesn't. And I was, you know, in like, you know, uh, people just calling me a woman, people calling me, she just started to feel less and less like they were talking about me. You know, like there was like, it's not like it hurt necessarily. It wasn't painful. It's just like, I started to feel like 
distant from it. And so my first thing was, okay, I'm going to do all pronouns because that's what everybody's using anyways. But then most people were calling me she. And I was like, but that's not what it, what feel, it just doesn't feel, that doesn't feel like me, you know? And then um, using they, them pronouns sort of was gaining steam as opposed to something like Z and Zir and stuff like that, which is sort of a early nineties. Yeah. And they exist already. Yeah. It's that when we don't know somebody's gender, we say they. Yeah. We're already using it. You know, um, it's, it's a great replacement for he or she when you're saying that in like (laughs) text or something, it's already there. You use it all the time. You just don't realize it. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to do that. And if I tell people, then they'll know. Um, and then, so that was the choice. And a lot of people ask me about that tweets as like, you came out as non-binary. And for me personally, I didn't, I don't really feel a connection to coming out as non-binary because I just always was, right. you know, like when I post photos of myself as a kid, I refer to myself as a kid and I use those pronouns because, and like, I don't get upset if somebody, you know, whatever, like, um, it just is what it is. Cause for me, it was always there. It was always there, you know? Yeah. It's interesting um, because I, um, you and I have actually messaged on Twitter a couple of times about people calling me sir too. Um, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. always when I have a baseball cap on, it's mm-hmm. almost always when I'm just standing in front of a register or, you know, blocking something at the grocery store and they don't look at me. They're just like giant person who's six feet tall wearing a baseball sure. cap. Sorry, sir. Oh, man, man, <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And yeah, it, it, it has upset me at times, uh, especially when I was younger and I was just more insecure in general. I was like, right. do I look like a man? Like what's going on? Am I, am I too big for my space? Right. Um, and now I don't care. I, I actually feel bad for them because then as soon as I say something, even though I have a low voice, they're like, Oh yeah, whoops. Um, and then I'm like, no worries. You're good. Uh, but I do think that the idea of gender as a construct is the most interesting way to look at it because that's the only reason not to feel really like when someone says she, it's wrong because right. it's it's not that you disagree with the parts that you have necessarily because you're not trans. It's that you don't agree with whatever the BS is that we've assigned to what it means to be a man or a woman. Correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I would also just bristle at the it's not that I'm not trans because I think personally for me, my interpretation is that like non-binary folks are trans in a way like to me transgender is a is a pretty open understanding term because i think we have and i get it like people people need sort of like concrete specifics to understand and grasp it but for me like a, a transgender person is transgender whether they take hormones or have surgery or not like those those things do not dictate that it's right. actually the person's existence and it's like a choice within that person. Um, so like I do actually identify as trans, but that's not the first thing that I put out because of that sort of concrete understanding of it that I'm just like, yeah, I'm a non-binary person because it's like yeah. a little easier for people to understand. Um, but since we're getting into it, I'm like getting into it a little bit that like, yeah, I mean, I like um, to learn about it. Cause I think we're all yeah. trying to like learn more about what, um, the right terminology is and, and sure, yeah, and you're right. And I, I mean, don't I'm think that the concrete things are necessary, but for some people who are trying to adjust, it's like easier to cling yeah. to this is what this means when sometimes we have to be okay with like it being gray area and be, being figured out. Yeah. I mean, the, to me that that's the whole thing is that it's all a gray area. And I feel like 
the people who are, you know, cisgender that, that really have a problem with this conversation that we're having and really don't like it or have a really just can't understand it is because it gets, it gets to that gray area that, and, and then their insecurity of like, well, if my gender isn't concrete as a woman or a man, who am I? And that's a scary place to be. Mm -hmm. I find it to be not scary for me. It's not scary to do that sort of introspection and like wondering and like, you know, it's, it, sometimes in my life, I'm, I am really looking at my femininity and my womanness, you know, I'm looking at those things and learning to accept it because it is there. It's not, not there just because I say I'm a non-binary person. Right. Um, Well, and I think there's also the ideas of, um, homophobia and misogyny. Oh yeah. At, at play. 100%. Like if, if I can't figure out whether you're a woman, how am I supposed to pay you less and treat you like shit? <laughs> right. And <laughs> right. also, also if you're not a woman, then I'm not a man. Right. You know, like as a man, I can see how that pulls the rug out of, well, wait a minute. If somebody can be a man and let's get into some very specific terms here. If somebody can be a man without having the genitalia that we assign to being a man, without actually with own, without owning it, quote unquote, then what does it mean to be a man? Mm-hmm. And to me, that's incredibly freeing because you get to define that. Yeah. As but whatever other it people, is to you. It's terrifying. But for some people, that's right. terrifying because that is the basis of their understanding. And I'm not going to point the finger and say you're completely wrong. That's your understanding of it. I just think that's where a lot of the fear and hatred and confusion and anger comes from because you're really pulling out a lot of understanding of what you're taking someone's people feel as though their identity is being taken away when you offer up yours. And like, that's not actually what it is. It is actually someone sharing themselves with you and then you get to share yourself with them, you know, ultimately. Uh, but that's a really scary thing to do because that's called vulnerability, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And we, I, and also to bring it around to sports, like for me, if you start really um, pulling apart what it means to be this gender and that gender, then how can you segregate sports by gender? You can't. My ultimate sports utopia is that all children play sports together, regardless of their gender, starting day one. And then you segregate kids by talent. Yeah. You don't segregate them by gender. And you have these like co-ed teams, because like I said, I play in a base. This is a baseball league. This is people always. Is it fast pitch? I'm like, baseball is always fast pitch. I don't know what question you're asking me. <laughs> the older we get, um, the slower it is. But technically, yes, <laughs> yeah, sure. you're considered it's about fast 60 pitch. miles an hour, but <laughs> yeah. it's still baseball. Yeah. And we play with wood bats like we play like fully almost all MLB rules. And, um, you know, it's a mixed co-ed league with a lot of different uh, things in there. And what I've learned over the years of five years playing with these folks is that we don't women for lack of like, let's just use the binary for this conversation. Women don't don't learn how to play with men and men don't learn how to play with women. Mm. And this is how those things you were talking about, like paying less harassment, like all that stuff not knowing how to be with each other from a very early age, getting segregated into lines by gender is what allows for this stuff to keep happening. Right. The only places it really seems to be a thing are sports and bathrooms. Like there's almost nowhere else that you really need it otherwise. And you don't necessarily need need it it there either. Yeah. 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 I mean, do you know who Phyllis Shafley was? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So she, I didn't realize this until very recently, 
but she was arguing about bathrooms back in her time. Like yeah. that was the thing back. Like, so none of this is new. You no, know? it's and the bathroom new. thing is like, it really, the instances of things happening in bathrooms are so it, it, it's, it's just not true. Yeah. It's, it's know? an invented fear, which is the way that people use panic and, and, and fear to, mm-hmm. to get the things across. It, it's funny, um, that you mentioned the baseball thing I play. Well, not recently because my, my shows are always during it, but I for years played co-ed softball. Mm-hmm. And one of my teammates was this badass girl who played in high school and had a hell of an arm. And one of our teammates was a guy who just played for fun. And, it, you know, hotly contested postseason game, someone drills it deep to right and he, hits her roughly five feet away so that she can throw it home because he knew that she had a much better yeah. arm. And he was like, right. well, she wasn't even a cutoff man. She was just like right next to him. And he was like, yeah. please, you do it. You're going to yeah. get it there. Um, and I love that moment. Cause it was just like ego gone. We got to win this. Sure. You've got, you've got the cannon. Um, That's like the moment in Fury Road when Mad Max hands over the gun to uh, <laughs> yeah. Furiosa. Cause he's yeah. like, she's the better shot. And yeah. it's like, the, the, but the, but ima- imagine imagine if children were doing that right you know what i mean imagine if a, nationally as a country and if we if that's what we instilled in children that like it's actually the talent and that's like we, yeah. I, I just think that that is a much we you actually because i think sports are really important for children to learn you know team building exercises and like also that like winning isn't everything you know, and like playing together as a team is important. And like, if we, if we instilled those things co-educationally, I think it would help resolve some of these issues that we then shove people, you know, into working together who have not really had to work together for most of their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's been two years uh, yes. since you said, okay, they, them, there, how's it been for you? Um, it's been good. I mean, the journey that I've learned to be on is that it's in, it's inside of me and like every interaction is a choice, you know? Um, and that over time, I mean, what I practice now as a person, um, in like correcting or I should say reminding people, I guess, um, cause correcting is such a harsh word, but I, I'm trying to use it more to maybe make it less harsh. Um, letting people know in conversation, it often that person will have a big reaction to me saying like, oh, just, you know, by the way, I use they, them pronouns. Um, and that's the way that I say it to most people. Uh, it just like that, very simply. Um, and you know, I, I looked at for most of my life, people have called me Rhea because like they read it and they, they just make an assumption. And there was a time where the chip on my shoulder was so big that I would be angry about that. Like, how dare you not know how to, and like, that's pretty shitty. That's pretty shitty of me. <laughs> like, why would I have that expectation of everyone? I've right. mispronounced people's names. I would love understanding and kindness around it. So, you know, so I would just be like, Oh, it's Rhea, by the way. Um, so that's the same. It's to me, me, and I'm not speaking for anybody else. It's the same as like mispronouncing my name. Like you didn't know. Now I'm telling you. So now it's your job to just try, you know, right, right, and a lot of people right. don't like to be assigned to that job. <laughs> That's what I'm learning. <laughs> a lot of people get really uncomfortable with being asked to do something. Right. Um, and that's just been an interesting experience. Like I have a close friend who, uh, you know, he used to go by like a shorter version. I'll, I'll use a fake name. He used to go by Ben and now he goes by Benjamin. And I am so used to calling him Ben, you know, because for my, our whole life, I called him Ben. But 
he, you know, created his life. You know, we, we parted ways as human beings as we do and keep in touch. And in that, this life that he has now, his wife calls him Benjamin, his close friends call him Benjamin. And like, he has a hard time with my pronouns. And so I just go like, okay, I've told him once. Now I'm going to make sure that I do him the same solid and call him Benjamin. Yeah. Cause that's, that's what he does. So like, it's all just a practice of like, and I, I also, when people get into the whole, like, well, you got to give me blah, 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 blah. You got to understand. You got to understand. And I'm like, I do understand actually. <laughs> and the reason I'm correcting you is because I care about our relationship. Right. I want to know that you're still trying and that it matters to you. And also like yeah. it matter, you matter to me, you know, like you person that is, is, I'm being, I'm asking you to do this. You matter to me and our relationship matters, yeah. you know? Otherwise you just and like, walk away and say, cool, you don't get it. Uh, <laughs> don't need to deal with you that much. It won't matter. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> I don't say that to everybody, but I say that to the people that do matter because I, I'm just trying to remind them that like, this isn't about me making you feel bad. This isn't about me making you feel like you got it wrong. Cause like I said, there is no wrong answer. I'm just asking that you consider trying to do this. For sure. It's like, I, I get people's pronouns wrong. I get people's names wrong. I'm not, it's, that's not what it's about. Perfection or something. It's just about like, and also you got to remember too, if a person is telling you, Hey, these are my pronouns, they are being vulnerable with you. They are like trying to practice. They're trying to practice standing in their truth. And like right now, you know, all this, we are, we have no idea what's going to happen. And it is so important for me to continue standing in that and not let that part of myself get small. Right. Right. Cause I could so easily set so that inside. Right. Oh, we don't know. And we don't know. And we, my, my, I, because what that ultimately is, is me saying to myself, I'm not important. But if I, if, if I stop seeing myself as important right now, like, Oh, all is lost for me in particular. So like I encourage people to find those parts of themselves that they think are, you know, that, Oh, this is frivolous, right? It's not, it's absolutely not. It's actually important. doesn't mean that that's the only thing that you start caring about right now, but it means that you hold, you hold on to that and hold that dear to yourself because it is important. You know, like you are important, especially right now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Man, I wish we could talk longer because I mean, there's so much of your work <laughs> stuff I wanted to get into. Um, I'm sorry. Adam ruined I'm, everything and, I'm a talker. and take my wife because you know your ex Cameron was on the podcast as well. Um, you know, there's there's so much of your work and uh, I first of all I also was researching this and did not know you got married at the Hideout, which is just so badass. What a cool place! It's um, a cool place. It is a very cool place. Uh, one of the many places right now that's trying to figure out how to survive during all of this. Uh, yeah, truly. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I guess that just means you'll have to come back. Uh, I guess I'll just have to come back. You'll have to come back. But I honestly love this because I love these conversations, um, and that you're, you know, vulnerable and willing to talk about them because so many people I think want to, want to get it and, and help and, and, and yeah. be a part of it. But it's, it's new for a lot of people. And so Absolutely. Uh, it's just useful I, to understand it. A hundred percent. And I, I, I really appreciate being able to talk about it on your podcast and, and you being open to talking about it. And like, I just would say, that like the trying is the important part, right? You know, right, the trying right, right. and and remembering like humility that it's not actually about you when you're trying; it's about that other person, and that's the thing to keep in mind. That it's like 
it's not about points. It's not about hash marks. Yeah. It's not well, about goals. The trying <laughs> is very clear. And that's why yeah. you know when someone is intentionally either insulting or going against your wishes. Oh, it's yeah. the same as, you know, it's not that you're not allowed to say the N-word if you're white. It's that we would ask that you don't. And do you the, want and, to? And why your do you need, want to? Exactly. Your need to say it tells me what I need to know about you. Yeah. It, you know, and like, and what's if someone you, is asking you, yeah. you, it hurts when you use the R word for people with mental disabilities and you insist on being able to say it. Why? Why? Why do you need to say it? Why don't you understand and care when someone says it's hurtful or damaging or creates, you know, uh, systems yeah. that are dangerous for people? Um, and, and it's the same thing with this. If your immediate reaction is to scoff or to reject it, um, that tells way more about you than the person that's asking you to accept them. A hundred percent. Um, and, and that's and I I always, probably uh, the most frustrating part about it. Cause it's frustrating yeah. for me just talking and about I, it. When I get frustrated with it, which I, I, I feel you and I see you on that. I try to, in that moment, look to the people in my life who are practicing it well, you know, mm-hmm. and like when, when people, when it starts to hurt, if somebody's doing those things to me, I take a moment to do even just a mental gratitude list of the people in my life who are the closest to me that see me and try, make mistakes, but try the people that are, and it might be the same four people every time, but those four people are really important and and I try to grow my gratitude for them in that moment as opposed to grow the frustration with the yeah. people. I've yeah. also found that instead of getting angry with people, I just start asking questions and then their logic mm. ties them up because they don't mm. have a logic. And then mm. either they give up or maybe occasionally they actually, you know, think about it differently. But I find that just asking questions, why do you need this? What is this? You know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing um, is, is pretty powerful sometimes. All right, before I let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Number one, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. Oh, my Desert Album or Desert Island album. Um, the first one that popped into my mind is uh, Street Lights by Bonnie Raitt. Ooh, good. Nice. I was going to uh, say, I mean, Linda Ronstadt is, is oh, out there. That's a name I haven't heard in a while. Really? Uh, you got to yeah. see that. Doc- Linda Ronstadt has been saving my life for like okay. four or five years. The documentary, right. you really got to watch it. But, oh, Linda Ronstadt, basically any Linda Ronstadt album. I just immediately think of somewhere out there from uh, a, a... For sure. You got to Whatever that mouth movie was. Yeah. Was, uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah. Number Something two. Tale? American tale. American tale. There you go. There you go. Uh, what habit or quality do you think you have that contributed most to your success? Habit or quality. Um, I think, oof, that's a tough one. Um, daydreaming. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it's I a like habit, that. you know. Good for comedy, for sure. Uh yeah, I mean I have uh, yeah, my daydreaming mind of like it will run through so many ideas so quickly, which gets me into a lot of trouble, but it also helps me do my job. So yeah. I'll say that. Uh number 3, what would you consider your biggest failure? Oof. Um hmm. What would I consider my biggest failure? I think, um, I'll, I'll say the way that I dropped out of Notre Dame. Like if I could go back and do it differently, I would. 
Yeah. Um, that I would do it. I would have more conversations probably with people as opposed to sort of running away. Number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? Uh, can you define fist fight? Um, I mean, have you punched somebody or? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have. <laughs> All right. We'll leave it at that. It uh, was num- in defense. It was in defense. Okay. Someone, I, like I did some shit. I was practicing some shitty behavior in this woman came running at me and we got into like a a fight and um because of the way it was being pulled apart it looked like i started it and i got Uh, thrown out yeah it'll happen uh number five if you could switch lives with anyone for a day who would it be oh man um if i could switch lives with anyone for a day who would it be um i'm gonna go with a fun one and give a shout out to my friend justine siegel Oh, okay. Um, because baseball she, for all. yeah, baseball for all, because, uh, she's just like a really talented pitcher and I would love to be able to throw like she does. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good one. Yeah. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh, um, I mean, I've definitely, I, the first thing that comes to my mind is I did a set at flappers in Burbank here. <laughs> Great name. Yeah, Killer. thank you. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and uh I just fell flat on my face. Like I just didn't, you know, I just had a bad set and I remember um walking off the stage and there was like a bottle of water on a table and I grabbed the bottle of water. I walked straight off stage and out of the building and walked into like and straight into my car and just drove home in silence and it was just like <laughs> this is That's the great. worst. <laughs> uh number seven what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve mm. um i oh so many things <laughs> so many things every day um i think my like listening i i would love to improve my listening skills like mm. receiving people um yeah. that's something that i feel like i could always i think i think i'm a lot better than i used to be and i think i could always be better um, yeah. I've been reading a lot of Father Gregory Boyle recently. Okay. Um, he started Homeboy Industries out here and, uh, that has helped a lot, but that, that is one thing that I would love to improve. And I mean, obviously my scheduling issues. <laughs> <laughs> Number eight, if you could be commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? Oh, um, that every, that everyone would have to in- adhere to, uh, love one another. Yeah, it's a good one right now. It's particularly yeah. important. That's kind uh, of the whole game. <laughs> it is like the whole point of like everything. That's the really. whole point of yeah. why we're here. Yeah, it's, that's actually that's actually the one goal, and it's yeah. so hard for us, you know. Number nine. What's the most scared you've ever been? Uh, I feel like there's a lot of them, but I'll say the most recent one was uh people have been driving pretty crazy out here through all of this through the pandemic like there's all of a sudden this sort of lawlessness to the way people are driving here and uh i we my partner and i drove we were going to the grocery store um the night that garcetti like said that the full sort of quarantine was going into effect and um like nothing was open and we there was a weird intersection we turned left and this like little tiny sprinter van like sped up and almost t-boned us and i was like it was it was so close to having happened that i was like it was it was a bizarre feeling to have with it It was like a turducken of 
fear because <laughs> you're like already like what is happening you know like i i haven't had a ton of anxiety around this but it's just like it's pervasive and it's around all the time where you're like i don't know what's going to happen at all and then all a van is headed right i i, I mean it was it, it felt like a matter of feet you know yeah um that we almost got into this accident and so that that is the most scared i've been in a while yeah that sounds pretty scary. I've never it, heard it of a star ducking of fear, but it really moved me. It made me <laughs> yeah, feel your pain. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Finally, number 10, what three words would you most hope people would use to describe you? And you can't say they, them there. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, uh, kind, funny, generous. Oh, I like those. Those are good. Uh, and the fun. last one I'm really working towards, you know, working that, on generous that's a hope. Yeah. 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 That's good. Uh, who should I have on this podcast? Who should I talk to? Who's interesting and funny? I mean, you've, cool. you've had Justine on, right? I've not had Justine on yet. No. Yeah. I mean, I think Justine, she's, she's a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah <laughs> she's yeah. one of those like quiet. I mean, she's just like a baseball player, you know, like yeah. to me, when you, when you really, you know, there's a couple uh, sort of like characters of baseball players and she's just like, Totally. She is like the bullpen arm and like we'll play baseball together every now and then. And she sits at the end of the dugout and every now and then she'll be like, you know, you're dropping your shoulder, right? <laughs> you know? Just like a real, yeah. she's a real baseball player. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and one. she, she's just like doing really wonderful things for kids, you know? Yeah. Um, the baseball for all is a really powerful organization. It goes back to what we were talking about with the, uh, you know, a league of their own and all girls professional baseball, like, um, kids just want to play and they should be allowed to play. Nothing else should really matter. So I agree with that. That's a good way to end it. Hey, thanks, Rhea. I really yeah, appreciate thanks, it. Sarah. It was super fun. Yeah, it was really great to talk to you. I wish we could talk for like three more hours. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, I don't know, it might be governors, universities, spring breakers, world leaders, or any other human being who is not taking the warnings and advice of experts regarding quarantine seriously, but that would be dark, and that's not what we need at this time. So let's keep it light and just go with oranges. I love oranges. They're delicious, but I hate peeling them. I cannot stand my hands smelling like food, even if it's the citrusy goodness of an orange, which is weird because if it's like an orange scented lotion, I'm okay with that. But actual orange flavor on my fingers makes me mad. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this because I seriously hate this so much that I will make my husband peel an orange or a clementine and put it directly into my mouth like I'm some sort of modern day Cleopatra. Like, I'm surprised at this point I don't have, you know, hunky guards with large fronds fanning me all day as well. Like, that's the seriousness of this. I literally will not eat the orange unless he peels it and then shoves it into my mouth without my hands ever maintaining contact with the orange. Because the threat of orange-smelling fingers is real. All right, I feel good about what we accomplished today. Oranges took the brunt of the anger that I would like to direct elsewhere. But you know what? Oranges deserved it. There, I fixed it. If you got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe, rate, review. That's what she said with Sarah Spain and leave the dilemma in your review. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. <laughs>